0: There we go. Now it's working. Okay. Helps. I've, I've done that with lectures. I've hit the record button and it never takes and I don't pay attention. And then I look to go shut it off at the end and I say, it never started recording. Oh, well. We are recording now. So we have one assignment due today, homework number three. So if you haven't gotten that in, go ahead and get that in to me either after class or uh, online on D2L sometime before 6 o'clock tomorrow so I can get those looked at and get back to you. Exam. Exam two, exam three. Not exam three. Exam three is next week. Exam two tomorrow. I did print these out. If anyone wants a copy of the summary questions, if you want the ones you can so use to, they're on D two L too. You can get them all. Did you, did but you toss a couple of <laughs> there you do, do you need one, Liz, or I do have you have one. you have them already? Yes. Okay. Good step, one <laughs> there you go, sir. Welcome back. So those are the ones that, so this is the one you can use, so if you want to write any notes on this, go through and sketch out answers, it's just a good study source, I meant to give you these yesterday, I'm sorry, I had them sitting here and I completely forgot about it until after everybody had left and I said I was supposed to give those out. So, you can bring those back in tomorrow, use those with any other notes you add to them, but those are the chapters that we'll be covering for the exam. Again, recall that Chapters four through eight is one chapter for the purpose of the exam, so there'll be as many, even though it's five chapters worth of material, it's only the highlights that I hit in the lectures that I'm really looking for, that material that I'm going to be covering. So that will be tomorrow, the second half of class. And then quiz, yes the quizzes are slightly out of order, but that's just the way things seem to have worked right now. Quiz four we're going to do in class. Uh, that 's a separate class on the material we 're covering in Chapter Ten. I like to do that one in class here, so that 'll be in class on june the sixth it 's a slightly different format than the other exams and it doesn 't quizzes and it doesn 't really work well as, uh, well online. So that one will be June sixth as long as we get through all the material on it if i haven 't gone through the material on it, then we 'll push it off a day. But I tried to put it a little bit earlier because June 10th is a very busy day you 've got a whole bunch of things due. nothing tremendous. I mean one ho- homework assignment, yes. Um, Solar observations, any of those you've gotten since the last one, and I'll collect those one more time probably the following week. Uh, Quiz on chapters 4 through 8 and 9, so the third quiz will be available that weekend and due the 10th. And then, as I mentioned last time, the exam corrections from exam 1. I've got your stuff too, Brent. There you go. That's everything i got. So, if you want to go through and make corrections, again that means going through and uh, turning back. I'll need you to turn back in the exam and then turn in a separate sheet with the question as to what the question was, uh, what the correct answer is, and why you got it wrong. So don't just tell me, oh, it was false and it should have been true. Tell me why it should have been true. So hopefully it'll also put it in your head so when it comes to the final exam, you'll have, first of all, all the correct answers to study from, and you'll have a better idea of, of why it was wrong. If you choose not to do those, it won't, it won't hurt you. But it certainly will help, the ex- help you and the exam is I'll give you back half credit on anything you missed. So if you missed ten points on the exam, you can get back five of them. If you got too much other stuff to do and you did pretty good on the exam, you don't have to worry about it. It might not, you know, depends on with you whether it's worth the time. And you don't have to do the whole thing. If you just want to do part of it, do, do part, of it, do part of it. You know, whichever ones you do, or what I'll, what I'll correct for it. So that's what's com- that's what's coming up again. Monday will be, next Monday will be a big day and then we'll have some other stuff coming. I'll try to update that. Start to get you a few things coming into next week, but we're rapidly approaching the halfway point, so. Questions? No? Yes, sir. Is it actually possible you I know homework 3 is going to be late for me at this point? That mm-hmm. I can get a copy of it? Still trying to do it. Oh, yeah. I can print out out. Remind me during lab because I do not have, I don't think I have a copy <coughs> of it here right now. Just double checking. I do not believe I do. I'll check. But remind me during lab, and if not, I can print out a copy for you. Because I don't think I think I have all everything, but <laughs> I think I have everything but that one here. So, but yeah, remind me. I can I can get a, I'll get you a copy during lab section. Anything else? All right, we're ready for the picture of the day for today. Uh, beautiful picture of what's called the Orion Nebula. Uh, this is something you can actually see with the naked eye. Now, it's not going to look anything like that if you look at it with your eye, on, uh, eye, looking out at the sky. But you can actually see the Orion Nebula um, with, your, with your eye, if you look at it. If you know the constellation of Orion, one of the ones that people usually can identify, it's got four bright stars and kind of a square. And then three stars, three bright stars in a belt. One of the ones you usually, can usually easily see in the winter, winter sky in January, February, nicely visible. Well. Hanging down from Orion's belt is the sword of Orion, three stars. And this middle one is actually, if I can spell correctly. No, I was starting right at the first point, wasn't I? Alright, try again. Orion Nebula. So if you look at Orion, you're actually seeing the Orion Nebula. This is really what that star in the middle star of the belt is. Now, you're not going to see it like that, it's going to look like a star to you to your eye but you can actually see that even through a small telescope you can get some ideas. Certainly an image like this takes a larger telescope and a much longer exposure than your eye can see. Now this is what we're going to be coming up to in chapter 11. We'll start talking about uh, nebulae like this. The Orion Nebula is a region of star formation. So young stars are forming deep down in here. You can see how they're beginning to illuminate some of the gas and dust around it. And they also excite the the ultraviolet radiation they emit actually excites a lot of the gas further out around and causes it to glow. And in this case we're looking at oxygen, hydrogen, and sulfur. The different colors are color coded to show where the different elements are are concentrated within this nebula. So as parts of that nebula continue to collapse down, they're forming stars here. If we could come back and look at the Orion Nebula in tens of thousands, 100,000 years, it would be gone. So things like this do not last very long astronomically. You know, moon's four and a half billion years old. Earth is four and a half billions, billion years old. When we look at some of these nebulae, we're talking hundreds of thousands of years, or even tens of thousands of years. So sounds like a long time to us. It's not going anywhere in our lifetime. You know, Come back in 50 years and look at it, it's still going to look exactly the same as it does today to us. But over those long time periods, what's happening is these young stars that are forming are sort of breaking out of their cocoon. 100,000, 10,000 years ago, they wouldn't have been visible. They would have been completely shrouded by dust. And now they're slowly pushing that material off and clearing their their space around them. So they're constantly clearing that and this will eventually get evaporated and dissipated out into space over those kind of time frames. So not very short, not it's going to be gone tomorrow. But over relatively short time periods, it will uh, begin to disappear. And that's what we'll be discussing when we hit chapter 11. We'll talk about the interstellar medium. We'll talk about how stars form. And then go on to the following chapter to discuss the lives of the stars. So picture the Orion Nebula today. So again, much more detail than you'd ever see with your naked eye. Now, even if you look through a telescope, big telescope with it, you're not going to see any kind of detail. That's because when you take an image of it, you can point that camera at it, and you can leave that camera open for minutes, 10 minutes, 15 minutes, and collect all that light onto one image. Your eye doesn't do it. Your eye collects it for fractions of a second. So you, a lot of the faint material, all this stuff, gets all washed out in your eye. You don't get enough light to be able to see that. You only see the brightest portions. But when you can take an image, you'll be able to see a lot more detail than you'd ever be able to see with your eye. Questions, questions? No, no, no. All righty. Well, let's go back to the sun. And actually, we're almost done with the sun. That's where we'll end up for the exam. Tomorrow we'll end up with what we we covered on the sun. And then we'll head off on to talk about the stars afterwards. So we were talking about the active sun. And we would looked at the solar flares. um, The sunspots, activity on the surface of the sun we looked at last time. uh, The prominences, material that was pushed up relatively gently off the surface of the sun, forming nice streaming arcs. We looked at solar flares where the material was pushed off even faster in terms of uh, minutes to seconds instead of leisurely over days to weeks. And then we were looking last time at the end, I was talking about coronal mass ejections. So that's an actual very intense ejection of material out into space. Now, they're directed in some direction randomly, wherever that happens to occur, wherever this intense event happens to occur. If the earth happens to be in the path of one, that, that can be pretty bad, pretty, could be pretty bad for us. Even at our distance from the sun, that's a lot of energy that could be streaming right towards the Earth. They also could be meaningless to us. If the Earth, this happens to occur on this, and the Earth happens to be on the other side of the sun at the time, doesn't make any difference. That just streams harmlessly out into space. But if it strikes the Earth, it, will actually, it can actually deform our magnetic field. That's sort of what the uh, diagram is showing here, that we can actually dis- destroy, dis- dis- ah, dis- damage, destroy, our dis- Deform our magnetic field a little bit and allow more particles in, uh, resulting in stronger aurora and aurora visible at much lower latitudes. So, the interaction of these particles with the atmosphere is now, instead of being seen just in the northern parts of Canada and Alaska, now we're seeing them uh, as far south, you know, southern part of the U.S. You don't normally see, if you're down in Georgia, you don't normally see the aurora down there. But in a pretty intense storm, you can see it. The most intense one was uh, that recently that struck the earth was back in the late 1850s. And it was reported that you could actually see the aurora in Hawaii. Hawaii is pretty darn far south. Not to the equator, but you're pretty darn far south there. So to be able to have that much energy to distort our magnetic field that much, that particles are actually streaming in way down, you know, way down, getting close to the equator, about 20 degrees north of the equator for Hawaii. So getting very, very close to that, that there. It also caused significant damage to uh, the communications at the time. Certainly, we didn't have uh, all the fancy electronic gadgets that we have today. So back in the 1850s, it was telegraph. And the intensity from this energy of that mass ejection was enough to start fires in, tire- in the telegraph wires. So it actually caused significant damage at the time. What would it do today is a good question. You know, How hardened is our electronics against something like this? So could this easily wipe out especially communication satellites which are orbiting you know way out here with even less protection than we are could easily wipe out communication satellites and communication like that could be very easily disrupted for a significant period of time so you know how well could you commit you could actually wipe out you know different satellites could be completely wiped out their electronics just be destroyed by that intense amount of intense amount of energy so Something, for, something to look forward to. When will the next one occur? I said we had one in the 1850s. We're at a solar maximum. We look real close to it right now. So next week, next month, 50 years from now, 100 years from now, about equally, equally likely. There's no way to tell exactly when it will occur. And certainly we've had ejections as strong as the one that occurred in the 1850s. But unless they're directed towards us, and we're just this little tiny thing. In fact, I'm going to do that when we tell you that a little bit more when we do lab. But we're just this little tiny you know, P orbiting at a great distance from the sun. So it has to be sent almost right at us to really be able to do that damage. But it will happen. It's happened before. It will happen again. Just will it be next month? Will it be 500 years from now? You know, No, no way to be able to tell you which, one, which way that will go. All right, looking further out at the sun. If we look at the sun in x-rays, this is an x-ray image of the sun. Um, X-rays come from very high energy and very high temperatures. And if you recall last time, the solar corona has a temperature of a million degrees. So when we look at the corona, we actually see some areas that are very bright. Uh, Lighter colored areas are emitting lots of x-rays. Darker colored areas is much less material in the corona. And not as much x-ray emission going on. And those are what we call coronal holes. They're holes, essentially a hole in the corona, a hole in the atmosphere of the sun. And those are caused by the magnetic field of the sun. So the magnetic field lines here, recall the sun does not have a nice, simple magnetic field like the Earth does. Right? Earth has a nice, simple magnetic field. Uh, lines come out of the north, come out of the south, go into the north, out of the south, into the north. And to give you a nice, simple uh, magnetic field. The sun, because of the way it rotates, gets much more complex in terms of its magnetic field. It gets all twisted and tangled. And you get these loops associated with sunspots. That traps material in and keeps material within the sun. Keeps it from escaping. Particles in the sun, charged particles, protons, electrons, don't like to go across a magnetic field line. They'll follow along the magnetic field line. That's when you see things like prominences as the material follows along these magnetic field lines. But they don't like to go across them. So if it sends material out here, it doesn't want to break that magnetic field line. So it kind of traps it into the sun. But some of these magnetic field lines that extend outward into space, those are what we see as the holes and material from the sun then can escape. And that's what we call the solar wind. It's not a wind as in you think of going outside in a nice breeze. It's just a stream of particles leaving the sun. So the co- sun is constantly losing mass, material streaming away from it, uh, mi- millions of tons per year, so a lot of matter, but sun's not going any place anytime soon. It's so massive that it can continue to do that for many billions of years and still not even notice the difference in, ma- in mass. It's so massive. But that's all streaming out through these coronal holes and that's where the solar wind, that's a lot, what we typically see, that is the general aurora. When you just see a normal aurora, uh, very far north, it's usually just solar wind particles streaming in the general, um, general material from the sun. When you see the more intense ones, it's associated with the solar flares or with the coronal mass ejections. And then finally, again talking about the corona, it also changes. Um, it changes with the sunspot cycle, where the sun is very nice and calm. The solar corona is just sort of a glow around the sun, pretty symmetrical. As we reach the peak, if we were to look at the corona of the sun right now, it would be much more irregular. Note how it's kind of sticking out in one direction quite a bit, sticking out in this direction, more in this. It's very irregular. And that's as we get towards the peak of the sunspot cycle. So it gets more irregular as the sun gets more active, as there are more sunspots, more solar flare activity, um, more coronal mass ejections. All of that happens at the same time the solar corona gets much more complicated. Instead of just being a smooth glow right around the edge of the sun, there are some areas where there's a lot of material in the corona. It's been heated up a lot it glows much brighter. Uh, This is a visible light image. And other areas where it's much darker. So, the corona changes as well. It's not just an atmosphere, as you know, like the Earth's atmosphere is. It's constantly changing along with the solar cycle. So, the cycle doesn't affect just what we see on the sun on the surface, but it also affects objects, uh, parts of this atmosphere further away. Okay, now going back down in, we started at the interior of the sun, and we're heading back down there now. in order to get the energy source of the sun, you know, we need some source of energy uh, to provide all this heat that we see from the sun. How many, how many uh, me- megaton nuclear warheads did we need detonating every second? Remember we looked at last time? You know, large number, billions of them, every single second. So how do we get that much energy? Well, the energy of the sun is provided through what we call nuclear fusion. and That's taking two small particles and smashing them together so that they collide and stick and forming a new particle and as, prod- as part of that it releases energy. So in this case you're taking two protons, Okay, a proton and a proton, both have a positive charge, sending them together at extremely high speeds so that they crash into each other and stick together and form a new type of particle. In this case it's called a deuteron and I'll show you a little bit more of that on the next slide. But in order to do this, you need extremely high temperatures. It's not going to happen here on Earth. Right? I can send hydrogen atoms together and push them together. You need them moving so fast in order to overcome their intrinsic repulsion for each other. They hate each other. Not really, but they're both positive charges. If you try to put two positive charges close together, they push each other apart. So, And if the closer you get them together, the stronger they want to push themselves apart. So you have to get them extremely close together in order for a new force to kick in. The, electros, the electromagnetic force wants to push them apart because they're both positive charges. If you get two, par- two protons close enough together, mi- tiny, tiny fractions of a meter, um, very close together, then there's actually a new force that kicks in and will bind them together, will cause them to stick, even though they have the same charge. So there is another force that works, but works only on very, very small distances. So in order to do that, you've got to get them to an extremely high temperature of at least 10 million degrees. So if you're not at least 10 million degrees, you're not going to have any nuclear fusion going on. Meaning that the surface of the sun, about 5,800 degrees. Pretty hot, right? 5,800 degrees. A little bit warm for, you know, a little warm summer day. but. In terms of trying to fuse hydrogen together, forget it. It's not happening on the surface of the sun. It's much too cold. 5,800 degrees may be pretty hot to us, but in terms of these particles, that's very cold. They're not moving near fast enough to be able to get close enough to be able to stick together. So you need those extremely high temperatures and extremely high pressures. You need lots of particles there, too. Because those particles are moving around, you need lots of them colliding into each other so that they'll eventually stick together. If you only have a few particles scattered around, if the density is very low as in the atmosphere or the atmosphere of the sun, there's not going to be enough particles there to be able to allow them to stick together. So very high temperatures, very high pressures needed only occurs at the center of the sun. Now if we look, here's the whole thing. Yuck, right? The whole, this is the whole uh, steps that, that it will go through to actually form the, uh, to form helium. To take hydrogen, which is really what the, the sun is doing. It's taking hydrogen, hydrogen just being a proton here, and in a complicated process, putting those four hydrogen atoms together, taking these four hydrogen atoms, and coming out with one helium nucleus. So hydrogen has only one proton in it, A helium nucleus has two protons and two neutrons. So if you fuse four hydrogen atoms together, smash them together. Again, I'll go through the steps here in a minute. But you end up forming one helium nucleus and releasing energy. Not a lot of energy. Little tiny bit of energy, each one of these reactions. Um, Put the little gerbil in its wheel. You know, that's the kind of energy that each of these reactions is producing. It's not a whole lot. But when you're doing billions of billions and billions and billions of these every single second, that adds up to a lot of energy. If you've got, you know, a billion, billion, billion dribbles all running in their little wheels, you're putting out a lot of energy. But each individual reaction only forms a tiny little bit. Now let me look through this, walk you through the steps here just to show you what happens. The first one you saw on the other screen, but I really didn't sh- go through it in any detail. The first step, you take two protons and collide them together, get them going at a high enough speed that they'll c- crash together and form another element of another atom of hydrogen, but hydrogen, instead of having just a proton, which is the common everyday hydrogen that we have, the hydrogen that makes up you know, the water you drink, that's all has one proton in it. But there's also a version of hydrogen that is heavier, that has one proton and one neutron. Because it has one proton, it's still hydrogen. It has exactly the same charge at the center, but it's a little bit heavier. In fact, it's twice as heavy because it's got two particles in the nucleus. So you've taken two protons, made a deuteron, atom of deuterium. So the mass is essentially the same, pretty close. The two particles there, two large particles here. But you lost something. Positive charge, positive charge. So two positive charges going in, one positive charge going out. Well, you've heard of conservation of energy, conservation of mass. Guess what? You've got to conserve you have this conservation of charge too. You can't just make positive charges or negative charges disappear. They've got a balance. If you have two positive charges going in, you've got to have two positive charges going out. So one of the other atom that's one of the other things that's formed in this is a small positive uh, object called a positron. A positron is really an anti-electron. It's a little tiny bit of antimatter. So it's exactly like an electron. It's the antiparticle of the electron. Electron is a negative charge. The antiparticles have a positive. Have the opposite charge will have a positive charge. So now you have a little bit of antimatter in the center of the Sun. It's going to find an electron real quick. Right? Antimatter isn't just going to sit out there. Antimatter and matter do not get along. So what that positron is going to do is going to find a loose electron very quick and boom, they collide, they annihilate each other, and they produce gamma rays. So there's a lot of the energy coming out of that reaction. Is A lot of that energy is that positron being completely converted. That positron and that electron being completely converted into energy. So taking matter, converting it to energy along the process. There's also another particle that comes out of that, no charge, we've got our charges balanced, but there's one more particle that actually comes out of it, which is called a neutrino, and those are very interesting particles, they they don't like to interact with anything, They're the antisocial particles, they don't want want to have anything to do with any of the other particles around there, Um, we looked last time at how long it would take material to kind of work its way out through the sun, uh, the neutrinos don't do that. The neutrinos kind of zip right out of the center of the sun immediately. They can pass through you know, miles and miles of lead without even knowing it. So they pass right through the earth, they pass right through us, they're streaming through you right now. You don't notice them because the billion, billion, billion that pass through your little fingernail every second don't do anything. They go right through and they just keep heading out into space. But there are that many of them, there are a lot of them that are going out there. And if we could detect them, and there are ways to sort of detect these, and I'll look at that in a little bit. But if we could detect them, the interesting thing is it gives us a direct view of what's going on at the center of the sun right now. Now As it was eight minutes ago. right? It still takes some time to travel if they're traveling at about the speed of light. It takes about eight minutes to get from the sun to us. But unlike the rest of this energy, these gamma rays that are forming might take 100,000 years to work their way out from the center of the sun. So the energy that we're seeing coming out of the sun right now wasn't produced 8 minutes ago. It was produced 100,000 years ago and it slowly made its way to the surface. If we want to see what's going on in the sun right now, being able to detect these would be quite important. And that's what we'll look at at the very end of this section. So now we formed some energy. So this is all gone. This is just energy that's now working its way out of the sun. The particle that's left is deuterium and that will now collide with a proton. Okay, So you have an isotope of hydrogen that's two particles. Collide that with one more proton. They'll stick together. That's a much simpler one, okay? One positive charge, one positive charge, one mass unit, two mass units, and coming out you've got three mass units and two, char- two positive charges. So everything balances nicely there. You don't need to form any other positrons or anything else to balance it. But now you've actually formed helium. Not the everyday helium you put in a balloon though. Helium that's a little bit lighter than that. Helium three. Helium that has only three, a a mass of three units. Three particles in its nucleus. Two protons. That's what makes it helium, the number of protons. And one neutron. And. The final step is taking two of those helium-3 nuclei, combining them together. Okay, they collide together, uh, forming, giving off energy, making a helium-4 nucleus. That's the common, everyday stable helium that we're used to. That's what you use to fill up an ice balloon that floats up into the sky. And two protons come back out at very high speeds which continue the process. So keep it going as a chain reaction. You have very high-speed protons that come out of this and they continue. Those will go back in to begin this process all over again. Now of course that's one. You're looking at this occurring billions and billions and billions of bi- times billions, times billions of times every single second in the Sun in order to form its, in order to create its energy. I'm not going to ask you to draw that on the exam tomorrow. So I'll give you, I'll give you a hint. I'm, I'm going to ask you something about it, but I'm not going to, you know, I don't want to spend, spend your evening making sure you can reproduce that. I'm not going to ask you to draw that on the exam tomorrow. So, it's important, but you don't need to be able to reproduce. Know what's going on, the ideas in it, but do, don't sit there and spend your time trying to make sure you get every single portion of, knowing every single portion of it. Alright, now neutrinos. I mentioned the neutrinos last time. Neutrinos, come direct from the core of the sun. So they're produced in these nuclear reactions. They don't interact with anything. You could put, you could fill the distance between the earth and the sun with lead. They'd travel right through it just as though there were nothing there. They are what they're they're called weakly interacting particles. They don't like to interact with any other uh, ordinary matter. So if we could look at these, if we could see these neutrinos, could we detect them and could we find out then what the core of the sun is doing right now? You know, that would tell us, that would be a good test of our solar models is you know, what is the sun doing right now? Again, that energy takes time to, get, to, get off, to, to work its way out. If the sun were turned off right now and stopped producing energy, neutrinos would stop being produced. But there's still a lot of energy that's taking us time to work its way out of the sun. We wouldn't see the evidence of that on the surface for a long time. It would take many, many uh, centuries, millennia, for that, for that to work its way towards the surface of the sun. So it really, if we can detect those, it gives us a direct picture. What is going on in the core of the sun? Of course, if they can travel through uh, billions of millions of miles of lead without interacting, They're going to travel right through the earth without interacting very much. So they're no more likely to be able to detect them than they are with the sun or any other material. But you can detect occasionally. They don't like to interact, but every once in a while, if you had a billion, 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 billion of them, maybe one of them would decide to interact with another atom. And that was something that you can actually detect. And in fact, they will interact sometimes with chlorine atoms. So again, not, not all of them, but if you had a billion, 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 billion of them, you might get one of them to interact. That's what you're looking for. You're looking for those individual events, those individual times when you can actually see them. So you're not going to detect, you know, half of them. You're not going to detect a tenth of them. You're not going to detect one, one millionth of them. But you're detecting an extremely tiny fraction of them that you can then use to understand what's going on deep down inside the sun. Alright, so here's an example of what this observatory might look like. So observatories have been made to study them. Um, You can see the great tank here. A great tank of cleaning fluid. A lot of chlorine in it. Okay, so you need chlorine. That's what these will interact with on those very rare occasions. And then a whole array of detectors to detect where that event comes. So when when it does interact it produces a small burst of light. You want to be able to detect that. This is actually put in a mine in, I think one was done in a mine in South Dakota. Get it way below the Earth's surface because neutrinos don't mind going through all that dirt. But lots of the other particles from space do. They get stopped as they try to penetrate that. So it uh, removes false detections. So you wouldn't have any other stray particles from the sun or other particles from space coming and interacting with the chlorine, which would happen as well. But you would shield it enough that just, you, just see the, you would just see the interactions of the neutrinos. And did I, oops, let's not do that yet. I had a couple more things to say on that. Um, so what happened when they made the observations, they would do the calculations and figure out how many they were supposed to detect. So you knew what the likelihood of a, of a neutrino interacting with a chlorine atom was going to be. How likely it would be. Is it one in, you know, a billion times a billion times a billion times a, How many billions do you have to put there and multiply together to find that that? But you also know from our calculations how many neutrinos are being produced in the sun every second. And it's billions and billions and billions of billions, it's many, many neutrinos being produced each second. So you should be able to test say how many would interact. Would it be ten? 10 in, in an hour, 20 in an hour, you should be, that's a number, whatever the number is you could predict what that would be. And then you could make measurements. And what was happening is that the first measurements they found, they were only detecting about one-third of the expected number. So if they were expecting hundred neutrino interactions, you know, every day, they were only getting 30. That's a pretty, that's pretty far off. Now if you're expecting 100 and you get 95, eh, you're pretty close. You're on the the right track. If you're expecting 100 and you get 5,000, whoa, something's way off. If you're expecting 100 and you get only 30, something is off. So it told us there was one of two things going on. It meant that either we don't understand the sun, and that our model of the sun is incorrect deep down in the core, or other possibility would be that we really don't understand the neutrino. There could be some other property of the neutrino that causes this to only detect one third of the expected number. So, I mean, just as recently as just a couple decades ago, it was a big question: is you know why are we not detecting the right number of neutrinos? Is our model of the sun correct? So because we use that to understand other stars because the sun is the one we know the best so our models of the sun aren't working? That would throw into question everything we understand about the stars. Turns out that after further uh, investigation and analysis over a number of years that we do understand the sun. So our understanding of the sun was just fine but that we did not understand the neutrino completely. Neutrinos actually come in three flavors. No, they don't have any taste to them, but particle physicists have these very interesting names for them and one of the things for different types is they call flavors. So there's three flavors of neutrino. This experiment was set up to detect one of them. But if that neutrino had a little bit of mass, once it leaves the sun, it actually starts oscillating and it changes types. So by the time it gets to earth, it might be type one, the one that was formed. Or at equal chance it might be type 2 or might be type 3. The experiment will only detect the first type. So now all of a sudden there's three types of neutrinos that we now know about. These neutrinos that are being produced in the sun are oscillating between them. By the time they get to Earth, we would only expect to detect 1 third of them. So once we better understood the neutrino that there were three flavors. that there were three different types of neutrinos and that the neutrino could change its form in the distance, in those eight minutes it's traveling between the sun and the earth, it could actually change its form. And our experiment was only set up to detect one of those types, so we should get about one-third of what we expect, meaning that, yes, our solar model was good and and we did understand the sun, but we really learned, this experiment taught us something about the neutrinos. We learned something about the neutrino as one of the small particles in the universe. Alright, let's finish up chapter 9 then. The sun. Chapter 9 was the sun. The sun is held together by gravity. So gravity is pulling it together. Um, It's completely balanced by the pressure of the energy being pushed outwards. So energy being generated at the core pushes outward, wants to tear the sun apart, rip it apart gravity is pulling down on that, trying to hold it together, those two are perfectly in balance. So exactly enough energy is being produced to keep, to balance the sun against gravity. If the sun tries to produce too much energy, if it produced more energy, uh, then it would start to expand. It doesn't. The sun has not changed in billions of years. If the sun produced too little energy, it would begin to contract. So it's all in a complete set of balance that will last for a while we'll see, although we'll talk about in chapter 12 coming up, how what happens when that finally changes. Eventually, it's powered by nuclear fusion. Hydrogen fusing into helium. What happens when you use up all the hydrogen? Right? Run out of, run out of gas. Something's going to stop at the center of the sun. Then we're no longer in this balance and things will start to change. And that's when the stars start to get really interesting. The layers of the sun, we had I mentioned the interior ones last time. I didn't put them back up here, but the interior of the core, you had the uh, radiative zone and the convective zone as you worked yourself out. As you went further out into the atmosphere, you have the photosphere. That's what we see as the surface of the sun. You have the chromosphere, the inner atmosphere, out around that. And you have the corona, the outermost atmosphere, which is extremely hot. Photosphere is only about 6,000 degrees. Uh, The corona gets back up to a million degrees again. We can study the sun. We can study the interior of the sun indirectly. We can look at oscillations, uh, called helioseismology. Meaning looking at oscillations on the sun and using that to picture what's going on deep in the interior. We can also use mathematical models. So solve those yucky, yucky equations. I showed you the first I showed you last time. That you don't need to worry about. But if we solve those, then I can tell you exactly what the sun is like inside. And those are what we were worried about with neutrinos, you know, if was was our knowledge of those incorrect or our knowledge of the sun, some of the numbers going into generating those were they incorrect? Sunspots are one sign of activity on the sun. They're regions where the magnetic field is extremely strong, so very high magnetic field. They look dark, but they look dark only because we're seeing them against the bright surface of the sun. So otherwise, they would be very bright. Scoop that that sunspot material out, put it out in space, and it's going to glow bright. That temperature, probably a bright, pretty bright orange. So it's going to be relatively hot material. It just looks dark because you're looking at something so much hotter and so much brighter. Nuclear fusion, that's what we started talking about today. The net result of it is that you take four hydrogen atoms, smash them together to form a helium atom, and along the way, you've converted a little bit of mass. If you add up the mass of four hydrogen atoms and compare it to the mass of one helium atom, they're not exactly the same. There's a little teeny tiny difference. And that little bit is what is converted to energy. That little bit of mass of hydrogen has been converted to energy. Most of it has just been changed form from, one, from hydrogen to helium. But that little tiny bit is lost in terms of the positron colliding with an electron and producing energy. Solar neutrinos, those are the ones we can see. Those are particles that are produced in those initial reactions, zip right out from the center of the sun. And we've, using those, we've actually learned not so much about the sun. They were a good confirmation of our theories, finally, once we fully understood the neutrinos. But we really began to understand a lot more about the neutrinos. We began to understand a lot more about those particles than specifically about the sun. So, the sun.